LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins. And today, well, first of all, you should know, once again, without a co-host. So if you're looking for a job, doesn't really pay anything. Uh, but if you're a frequent listener or a podcaster and you're like, hey, I think I could I think I could hang out with Todd, do this. I am looking for a co-host, kind of. I'm kind of enjoying having the guests all to myself as well. Which we have a great guest today. His name is Mark Sayers. I hope I s- said your name correctly. Did I did I do okay? You did fantastic. Excellent. And as you can hear from the accent, he's an Aussie. Uh, and if you follow me on Twitter for like the last several years, you may recognize that I tweeted through one of his books, Facing the Leviathan, which is an excellent excellent book. That's not the book that we're talking about today, but tell them a little bit about Facing the Leviathan, and then we'll actually talk about your other book. But we're really here to talk about five leadership questions, and I guarantee you're going to get a unique perspective from this guest. So I know we're like 400 podcasts in or something crazy like that. Uh, I promise you, you're going to get unique perspective from this guy because he's from Melbourne, and all great things come out of Melbourne, not Sydney, correct? (laughs) Yes, very true. All right. So tell us a little bit about facing the. Uh, I almost said facing the giants. Please forgive me. Uh, yes. <laughs> very American movie, uh, Leviathan, and and uh, then we'll get into it. Yeah, um, I, I think I look back and I can't believe that I wrote it. Not in the sense that I regret anything I wrote. It was just, uh, I think it was a book really written about leadership difficulties. Um, I think it was about being a leader um, of a church or just being a leader in a really difficult personal season. Um, And I I attempted to tell that story um, through also looking at a bit of a paradigm, I guess, in the West. Like I realized that there's almost these two canisters that we look at leadership through. One is this, you know, how do we sort of program our way out of problems? And then the other one's how do we deconstruct our way out of problems? And you know, I called it the mechanical and the organic approach. And um, I sort of look beyond those two, um, you know, paradigms that seem to shape so much of our thinking and, and really ask the question, you know, how do you lead in a difficult season, but how do you do that through surrender? And how do you do that to, through submission to God? So that's essentially, you know, that's a, a quick little capture of what that, what that book is talking about. And so I really think that it dovetails well with your new book, which is Reappearing Church. Um, there's a precursor to this, Disappearing Church. Uh, and that was, yeah. Disappearing Church was about, you know, from cultural relevance to gospel resilience. And now we're like Reappearing Church. Now we're living in a post-Christian world where, you know, we have set a lot of hopes and dreams on technology and politics and uh, the appearance of peace. And we all have seen how that has, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. It's uh, tentative at best uh, and can go anywhere at any time. But that progress that we thought was happening uh, through technology and all these things has actually served to, you know, isolate us. And in some regards, from a political standpoint, even threaten to tear us apart. Um, So that book is more about, you know, as cultural declines to, I'm sorry, cultural decline continues to, accelerate really we're in a new day where we have uh, the gospel that consistently now even more so stands apart. So talk a little bit about that. 
Well, I think the the disappearing church. I think I wrote um, at a moment when it just seemed like there was this inevitable march of decline for the church. It was almost that this sort of secular, you know, moment was taking over. And I remember just a whole bunch of things happening of, you know, churches I knew where you know people you know which had moved into decline that had formerly been healthy here in Australia to um, just a tone in the media where it seemed like there was the triumphant tone that you know a new mood had taken over um, to you know even friends you know sort of walking away from faith just deconstructing faith and so it was written at this moment like you know it's it's like wow how do we how do we survive in this? How do we have resilience in this moment when, you know, the culture seems to have almost moved, you know, move from a cultural Christianity to now almost an anti-Christian stance. Right. But, but reappearing church, um, you know, in, in the couple of years, I mean, that was really, I, I, mean, I can't remember exactly when Disappearing Church came out, but it really was written really around 2014, 2015. And then 2016 um, to sort of now, you just began to see that, almost triumphant moment um, of secularism and sort of post-Christian sensibility, you know, all across the West just began to really falter. And, you know, all of a sudden this inevitable slide towards, you know, a better future that was almost inevitable where, you know, that promise of a utopia didn't start to arrive. I mean, you had everything from political shocks to as you talk about, you know, you think about how you go back five, six years ago and social media seemed like this wonderful, you, you know, the Arab Spring, you know, all these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It looked like it was going to change the world. And then all of a sudden look where we are now. And, you know, look, we're not exactly in a, in a, um, you know, the sort of zombie movie, but um, the fact is you can see this serious worry about the world, you know, I mean, I just literally logged on, um, you know, it's early in the morning here and, you know, just saw it on, I saw on social media, you know, image of the Chinese army seemingly moving troops across the border into Hong Kong now, you know, and there's just these, every time I turn on the news, there's these touch points. And, and so you've got this large scale social, um, sort of dislocation, but then also personal as well. And, and what I, what I began to notice was, you know, I, I, I'd had a lot of experience where, talking about, you know, how the church can reach out. And we used to say, no one's ever just going to walk into your church anymore in Australia. No one's just going to turn up and say, hey, I want to check out church today. The bizarre thing is people started doing that. <laughs> and, and we had people ring our church with no church background going, hang on, I'm not happy with where culture's going. I'm actually concerned. Um, and I want to hear about from you guys. Is that, you know, what, who is God? What, what right. is the, what is the gospel? You know, and it, it took me by surprise. And, and the reading, I, I increasingly, as I read church history, I began to realize that when you get to these moments of social dislocation, sometimes rapid technological change and a globalized world that after those moments, that's when renewal and revival often happens. And we're at one of those moments. If you look at the 18th century and the Great Awakenings, that was a time when the British Empire was creating a, a globalised world. Technology in the Industrial Revolution started to change things. This created great social dislocation. And then after that came a renewal. So I began to ask the question, like, hang on, what if this isn't this moment where you know, it's decline. We've just got to be persevere through it. What actually, if we need to change our paradigm and what if this is a moment when this is the moment before God initiates a renewal and that reframed so many things for me. 
One of the fascinating things to me, and I do think I've mentioned it on the podcast once or twice, and this is not fact, it's just opinion, but uh, I think a decent opinion, a good, a good, good decent opinion, because uh, it's mine. I hold it in high value. <laughs> um, but I think the American church should not be looking at Europe when they say, oh, we're going to go the way of Europe. We need to study Europe and learn Europe, what it's doing, whatever. I say, no, no, no. We are far more like, at least from my personal experience, I've been over three times now uh, to Australia and we've done pipeline in a bunch of different cities. And I, I feel like I know the church now because uh, at least parts, significant parts of the church there now, because, you know, we're walking through two days of, here, you know, talk to us about your problems and let's, you know, help you walk through those. But the big thing for me is the Australian culture is much more similar to the American culture than the European culture because European culture well, okay, Australian culture and American culture are similar because it is so in, fiercely independent, um, so uh, contrarian. <laughs> um, there's a lot of similarities that I would say that that we share and hold dear compared to um, the U.S. and Europe. Would you would you say a similar thing or no? Um, I, I think like Australia could be replaced in the Atlantic somewhere. In many ways, it's 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 culturally yeah part. I mean, very it's 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 it has a British feel, it has a European feel, but then you're right, it has an American feel. And if you look at Australian history and and somewhat New Zealand history as well. Um, the, the sort of, you know, creators of our countries looked at the political systems of both and took the best from both. Um, I have a weird feeling that sometimes when I'm in Europe, I sort of almost feel a bit American. And when I'm in America, I feel a bit British or, or European. I think there's this, this mix of the two. But I think you're right that they're both new countries um, in the sense that they sort of people left the old world. America had more of an idealistic bent on that. Um, Australia had more of a dystopic bent on that with its convict <laughs> history and and people leaving Europe after war and stuff like that. Um, but I think you're right. There's a similarity. Um, but, you know, I, I also think too that um, Europe is, is such a diverse place as well. And, um, um, you know, I think the more that I sort of connect with in, you know, in Europe, you realize they're so different, the different countries. But I think you're right. I think that, you know, what's happened in, in Australia um, and, and some countries in Europe as well, as I think is, is a portent of, you know, what's going to happen in America. But then also there's, there's some real uniqueness to America as well. It is interesting because it, even if you look at um, like the next 20 years or so, there's going to be a minority majority here when you look at the ethnic breakdown of what traditionally has been uh, the makeup of U.S. So one of the things I find fascinating as well is where you see from a research perspective, and this is not opinion, this is research, where you see um, the um, what is currently the, you know, Anglo uh, majority continues to decrease in uh, belief and um, or at least level of belief from a traditional evangelical standpoint, you see uh, minority populations holding the line and some growing. So the interesting thing to me will be what does Christianity, what is Christian leadership, what do all those things look like in the future? 
And, you know, I'm excited to see that unfold, but I don't think it looks like what it looks like today. No. All right. We should probably actually get into our five questions. <laughs> but I told you it was going to be a fun conversation. Um, people who are listening and hopefully to Mark as well. Hey, one more yeah. fun thing. Tell us why mm. Melbourne is better than Sydney. Uh, look, um, yes, look, there is a fierce rivalry. And I've got to say, you know, I, 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 I don't jump into the rivalry, rivalry too much. I think Sydney is actually an incredible world-class city in terms of its beauty and the harbour. It's like incredible, like I think it and Cape Town are two of the most beautiful sort of cities in the world. Um, but, you know, because we don't have, aren't blessed with such natural beauty, um, I think we d- develop an internal beautiful, rich life in Melbourne. So um, that's why our coffee's so good. We read. Um, but <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and sport, we you know we do sport. Um, that's true. So, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's my take on the two. You got to go to at I least do. one footy game. In your life, that's what I say. Yes, uh, because I was I was in another on another planet, and I. Anyway. Yes. Okay, um, we'll go into that in some other episode. I'm sure we'll have you, I have to have you back on. All right, first question: Who are you presently learning from? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, I, I feel like I have these different. Um, like how I arrange my lead, my learning as a leader, um, you know, I sort of have three streams is how I've I've learned to operate. Um, you know, I, I have my cultural stream, um, which really helps me understand, um, the culture. So I love John Stott's thing of, you know, reading the scripture and, and looking at the culture. Um, so I'm currently reading this big sort of epic book of history of the West from 1970 to not to now. And he's, he's basically tracing many of our sort of current cultural problems, uh, back to the 1970s. Um, his name is Simon Reed Henry. So just deep diving into his book. It's very huge. It looks at all the Western countries. So it'll be like dive into New Zealand politics and everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at him. Um, I'm also reading a Peter Drucker book, um, The Effective Executive at the moment. Classic. Um, so that's sort of a, a very, I've, I've never read it, but I'm just, I'm into it and really, yeah, listening, uh, listening to it. His whole thing on effectiveness, I think is really fascinating. Good on you, the, man. Yeah. In the sense that he makes the point at the beginning of the book that, um, you know, like a, like a carpenter can't fake effectiveness. You know, if someone, if you ask a carpenter to build you a table, um, and they turn up and it's like bent and it's only got three legs. Like it's obvious around effectiveness. But then he, he makes this um, claim, which I think is really interesting, that knowledge-based industries, you can almost fake effectiveness a bit more. It's a bit harder to see if you're effective. And I think with ministry, um, so many particularly young people, I mean, I studied advertising at college um, and, and particularly so many millennials um, have grown up, even if they're not in a knowledge-based industry, with an area where it's a lot of it's about the image, you know, manipulation of image um, right. and effectiveness can be more hidden in there. Um, and I reckon that can even shape our ministries. I mean, you can be doing a brilliant job on social media, making things seem wonderful and even how you talk about yourself. So what I like about that book is it brings us back to, you know, hang on, we've got to ask these hard questions. Things may look wonderful, but are they actually wonderful under the hood? Um, you know, so that's a, that's a really interesting, I think, I think, take on it. Um, and then um, I'm actually reading just a, a book. Um, so that, that's my sort of yeah, cultural lens. Then, you know, sort of, I guess, how do you sort of lead 
lens. And then my third one's just personally, I've been reading a couple of books by a guy called Roy Goodwin, um, who is in Wales. Um, and he, he basically, God sent him to this, he, he wanted to be doing evangelism in the business world, but God sent him to this completely out of the way retreat center, um, which then turned into this incredible sort of evangelistic hub and had like this mini renewal, um, at this, uh, this retreat center, like 300 miles from anywhere. Um, so I'm reading his book, The Way of Blessing, Stepping into the Mission and Presence of God at the moment. So that's sort of an interesting just personal um, story, really, which is inspiring me at, a, I guess, a devotional level. Very cool. So, okay. One of the things that we often do is, you know, kind of break down practical pieces and takeaways from business books for pastors. So going back to effective executive, how are you, because some, some guys will hear that and they'll be like, oh, I can't believe they're pushing another business book on this podcast. Yeah. Can you explain maybe one or two practical takeaways as a pastor that you're taking away from mm. that? Mm. I, th I think for me, like one of the, one of the things, I think one of the main ones is that, um, you know, <sighs> We can often take, I mean, this is my extrapolation of the concept, his concept of effectiveness, that we have different feedback loops coming in all the time. And one of the feedback loops can be, you know, people saying, hey, um, you know, you guys are doing great. There's something in us and, and where we constantly hunger for affirmation. And I think one of the tough things as a leader is sometimes success can actually be a threat. And... If you're in a church and, and, and for me, you know, we had lots of people saying, Hey, this stuff, you know, you're doing, this is great. And I've just written a book and, you know, on reappearing church and, and so often you can hear these feedback loops where people are saying you're doing great. And that clouds whether you're actually being effective. And just because people are in the room, it doesn't mean you're being effective. So for me, that book is really sort of just in the last few weeks really set me on a a bit of an assessment, you know, like, okay, so things are, how, how good are things really? Um, and I think today when you're in a post-Christian society where if people are turning up, you're like, well, that's good. Um, but then really how effective is actually your disciple making? Um, how effective is people's ability to go and share the gospel with others? You know, how effective are your leaders actually growing? So instead of listening to just what the good things that people are saying, which again, too, in this very image-based culture, they can think you're doing good just because they've visited church service and they seem like there's a bunch of people there and they've looked at your social media accounts. How do I get behind that feedback loop? And the second thing too is, I mean, and this could be for maybe authors or even if you ever want to write a book, there's this real danger where the book becomes the thing, not what you're doing. So I've just written a book on renewal, um, reappearing church we've spoken about. And my wife said to me something really interesting. She, the book had just come out and we're all excited and she just said to me, a great word, she just said, Mark, we've got to make sure we really continue to push into this at Red, that this doesn't just become the book. So the renewal can just be the book versus actually effectiveness of actually putting the book, mm. you know, and you see this happen where someone will write the book and then you know, they start speaking about it and they can take off and the book becomes the renewal and talking about it rather than actually be effective in context. Right. Um, so I think that was the second thing. So I took that great word from my wife <laughs> that I need to continue to be effective in my context 
and not just be a person who talks about it. Because goodness knows, like we, we have a, a glut of information. The world doesn't need more information. It needs more effective information that's born out of context. And it, in a sense, you know, books are not super easy to write, but it's a lot easier to write about it than actually do it. Um, so, yeah, so those, those are the two things I'd extrapolate from that book. Cool. All right. What is the main point of emphasis with your team right now? Um, the main point of emphasis with us, I think, is, again, again being effective. Um, and, and how do we, at this moment, as, in a sense, cultural Christianity is passing, we've realized that particularly even, even in Australia, where I think it's, it's passed and possibly disappeared, this, is cha- this has to change how we look at things. Um, so what we're discovering is particularly like, you know, we have quite a few millennials coming to our church. The thing that we're realizing is they're, in a tif- they're not coming because, hey, yeah, I'm in a habit of going to church. Um, they're coming because um, they're sort of the last one of their friends left going to church. There's tremendous pressure on them. Um, I've been really privileged to read a, uh advanced copy. Um, I don't think it's out yet of the new Barna Research Faith for Exiles. And I just was with those guys a few weeks ago in California, you know, and they're saying that, you know, in a, in a church, um, you've got these people who are habitual churchgoers. And I think it's one in five um, of your millennials are actually what they're calling the resilient disciples. Um, and what they said is really interesting is that with the pressure of post-Christianity, that means people are leaving. But the weird thing that it's also doing is it's also creating a, a core of really healthy disciples who are learning that you have to be a Christian. It's not going to be popular. And that's forcing them to push in. So the big thing that we're trying to do as, as a staff is actually push into how do we create resilient disciples? So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get them to think that language at the moment, moving beyond catering for cultural Christians and trying to sort of transition cultural Christians into deeper Christians. I'm asking the question, how do we, how do we create a church which builds resilient disciples, which creates a remnant of them and that launches a renewal from them? There you go. Everybody, all our listeners look for resilient disciples in 2021, maybe 2022. That's when the book will come out. Yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kind of. No, that sounds like a really, it sounds like a really good thing to be focusing on right now. And, you know, be, if you can, if you can identify the marks of a resilient disciple or perhaps the phases that people go through in order to become a resilient disciple, that would be very valuable. Mm. So, oh, for me. So, oh, sorry, you you were asking that for me. I thought you were asking that. To no, <laughs> I'm I'm saying I'm saying I want that. So you need to. Yes, yes. I'm saying yes. ferret that out. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, I I think partially a resilient. I mean, one thing I spoke about in disappearing church is I think that the model that the church took when it saw that the culture was in a sense moving away from cultural Christianity. And you can see the birth of um, popular culture, which, which, you know, in a sense pushed back on Christianity is the way we dealt with that is we answered it with let's create then this culture of relevance within the church. So relevance was this language which sort of emerged from the field of missions, 
Um, you had people coming back from the mission field and, and had learnt how to communicate the gospel across cultural lines. Um, and then they brought that back to the West. So, you know, how do we find cultural modes which are relevant that we can then use in church? And, you know, I don't think that's completely bad, but partially what it did was create a generation. Uh, and there was almost this moment, really, I think at the beginning of the 2000s, where it was almost like you can be completely in the culture in some field. You can be in Hollywood or you can be over here. And if you're just cool enough and a Christian, you'll have this cultural breakthrough. And then it flipped where it was almost like if you have any faith that's orthodox on anything, you're just not going to fit in. It's just not going to work. And so I think we almost did a slight disservice to a generation coming up where we said, you can be relevant Christians and, and you will not feel the cultural pressure. I mean, Jesus said that the world will be against you, but we almost didn't talk about that. Um, and so now it's actually equipping people for pressure. It's actually equipping people for, hey, you're not going to be popular. You know, with my daughter, I, I'm saying, um, you know, she's 12. I, I'm saying you are not, you've got, you've got to understand that you're always going to be different. Um, so, so that's one of the key things for resilient disciples. One is they have to learn to actually understand that the Christian life is never going to make you cool never going to make you cool. You'll always be under pressure. I think that, I think that a second thing as well is that partially what we did is that we, in creating, I guess, a model for consumer Christianity is we created models which tolerated a low level of faith. So we will make it as easy for you as possible. And I think that we created a low bar in many ways. Um, and, and I think now where we're going is we need to raise, I call it raise the challenge flag. You need to put the challenge flag up the flagpole and actually say, we're not going to, we're not going to, you know, mollycoddle you. We're actually going to ask you to do great things for God. And when I looked at renewals, the people who led renewals always challenged their, um, you know, their followers to actually do great things instead of sort of talking down to where people are at and say, I know it's difficult. You got here actually talking for resilient disciples where they need to go. And then just lastly, one element I would say too, is that I think also the machinery, if you like, that served cultural Christianity um, in many ways provided everything for people. It didn't teach them to be self-feeders. Um, you know, if you look at the people who generated renewals, all of them had a deep and profound prayer life. All of them learned to read scripture. We need to teach resilient disciples to be self-feeders um, and, and, and actually create an incredibly deep um, inner life with God, um, which, is, which is the foundation and setting point of their day. I mean, at, at church, we have a, a, a little hashtag thing we call win the day. Because what I say now is if you've got a millennial in your church or even really anyone, who is setting the timetable of their day is actually Silicon Valley. 90% of people reach for their phone when they first wake up. And that is setting your emotional mood for the day. It's setting your attentional um, focus for the day. So we actually need a plan now. We're actually, we're taking that back and we choose to win the day, opening our scripture, opening in prayer and let God begin to set. So we need to sort of almost go on the offense versus being on the defense is, 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 is I think really key for being a resilient disciple. That's really good. So you, I don't know how much pipeline stuff you've looked at, but you would really love what we're doing with pipeline. 
simply because we're talking about a map, not a menu, um, mm. and, you know, no longer treating baptism like it was the finish line, it's the starting line. But people who listen to this know that those are things that I say all the time, and they would tune out if I kept going down that road. So I'm not going to, but I'm going to send you some stuff after this. Excellent. Okay. Brilliant. All right. Um, okay, so let's get to question three. Other than spiritual disciplines, you've already mentioned prayer and the importance thereof. But other than spiritual disciplines, what are one or two things that you need to do every day to stay sharp as a leader? Hmm. Well, uh, for, for me too, like I realized being in a context like Melbourne, um, it, is, it is reading the culture. And I think that's become my thing. And people often think that, you know, I um, they say, oh, you know, and people think I read my books and think I've studied sociology and I, and I haven't. I'm really just a local pastor. And um, but what I do is I discipline myself every day to look at the culture as if I was a missionary. Um, you know, at seminary, I did some intercultural studies, a few subjects, and it just enabled me. So sitting under missionaries um, who had become really adept readers of culture in places like Papua New Guinea, I brought that focus to where I am. So I'm always trying to understand culture. Um, I'm always trying to not let the the news set my mood, but really understand what's going behind that. I find that increasingly being an interpreter of culture is actually an evangelistic opportunity that unchurched people are just as confused, if not more confused about the culture because they have no larger story to actually talk about the culture. Um, and so I think that that's really key. That sense of, of just learning about the culture is, is absolutely essential. Um, so every day I, I read in that sort of realm, that book I mentioned before I'm reading, I just observe, I just listen to people, um, you get in little conversations with people at the coffee shop and just say, hey, you know, how are you going? And just listening to what they're saying, uh, which is, you know, obviously good for sharing the gospel, but also is informing of, of where the real needs of people are at. Cause I think there's often communicated to us felt needs, um, but where really are people at? You almost sort of get, get to get behind all the noise at the moment. Um, cause if you just listen to the noise, which is really communicated by a small group of people, it almost feels like the world's turned completely post-Christian, but then you actually get on the ground and, and meet people who, um, you know, are asking these questions, where is God? You know, is there something bigger? The second thing I would say is grounding. And what I mean by that is I realize that in this online world um, where our attention can go elsewhere, where we can jump online and, and check out all kinds of things that other pastors around the world are doing, um, see that in real time, that as a leader, I need to be connected where I am. Um, I've really made a, I live in Australia um, and the, one of the benefits of that is that you know most of my readers are in America, um, so that puts me at a distance far away. So I've made it a real discipline to actually not travel that much. Um, just for the last few years, I've just done two sort of trips overseas. I don't do that much internal travel at all, like one or two trips a year. So I've made it this real discipline to actually be in place where I am, and that means in my neighbourhood. That means um, with my family, with my friends. So to actually lead this very embedded life because that helps me understand. I mean, I get a lot of great input from outside, but that actually helps me understand that I'm leading in a particular time and place in a particular time frame um, and to actually keep my focus where I am. The people who God has called me to serve in this particular area of Melbourne, um, to be present with my family, 
um, is really key. Just to be a dad doing stuff in the rhythms. Often people can almost get to this thing where we almost, I wonder if actually a lot of pastors almost resent the mundaneness of that when we don't see that actually the reality of the rhythms and mundaneness of life is actually where we get discipled by circumstance and Mm, God actually shapes us in those slow moments, just to be present with the person who you're speaking to at the supermarket checkout, to be present with my kids, with my wife, with the people I stop in the street to talk to. I find as a leader, that's just this wonderful grounding thing. Um, So they're two things that I think are really important that I try and do every day. Very good. Very good. All right. I'm going to move us into our next question, which is what does leadership in your home look like? You just mentioned, you know, spending time with your family. So what does leadership in your home look like? Yeah. The first thing I realized is, um, yeah, being present is key. I've said that. The second thing I would say is I I would, uh, I felt that God really asked me to disciple my, um, lead through an emotional atmosphere. There's there's a book which has been really um, a leadership book, um, A Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman, um, which has been really sort of key um, for me in the last few years. He, he was actually, interestingly, a family therapist um, who then took family therapy theory into the military, into corporate spaces, into government. That's and his cool. whole principle, he, he was actually a rabbi, and his whole principle was that leaders, we think that often leadership is based on talent. Leadership is actually based on the person who in moments of crises pre- presents a non-anxious presence. So what I realized is that, I mean, I'm sure Australia is like America in these regards, that increasingly life is getting busier, increasingly life is anxious in 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 melbourne there's this real anxiety and 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 i see that that comes because of our freedom it's so interesting the more free we get the more anxious we get and i can just see so many people just this stress that comes in and i I just noticed in my life and and other pastors i talk to that when you come home you can actually then like finally my guards down but often what that can mean then is our anxiety and stress comes out and that can just be in and being an absent you're here but not here that can be in how you talk that can be in a stress thing where your family actually gets the deficit rather than actually you know you in you in overflow so friedman you know encourages people to actually embed this posture of being a non-anxious presence now friedman passed away he wasn't a believer in jesus and I look at his theory where he says, be a non-anxious presence. And it's almost this incredible force of will that you have to do that in moments of high stress. But I took it and I said, hang on, what I, I have Christ with me. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I want to be the presence of God in my home. I want to, if I'm, and I felt God clearly say to me, if, if you, when you write a book on renewal and revival, yeah, you need to push that in, into that in your church, but you need to push that into your home. I think revival and renewal begins in the home. So for me, I began to see the things that I was doing with my team where we're trying to create a culture of prayer. Hey, so-and-so is going to go and do this. Let's all get around them and pray for them. We do that at home. My wife um, is running a prayer course for some people um, at one of our campuses last night. And our practice is we get around her and, and I get the kids. I've got twin boys who are eight, daughter who's 12, and we pray for her. So modeling almost leadership principles at home that I would do with my that I would do with my team in the office. That's one of the key ways I'm trying to lead at the moment at home. Being an anxious presence, but then modeling what God's presence looks like and renewal looks like in the home. 
You've probably heard about the movie Overcomer, but you may not know that there are a few books and Bible studies inspired by the film. One is called Define by Alex Kendrick and Stephen Kendrick, which is a book and Bible study based on insights from the book of Ephesians. You can find these books and Bible studies at lifeway.com slash overcomer. All right. I'm going to move us into our last question, which is what would you tell your 20-year-old self about leadership and preparing to lead? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, And I actually have thought a lot about this. Number one, I would say don't stress that it's not going to happen. God is going to take you where he wants to take you. So prepare believing with faith that he's going to take you to a place where he's going to really use you. I I look back to my 20-year-old self who had a real passion to serve God. Um, At 20, I was in in a church internship in youth ministry. And I just felt like at times I was so frustrated. I was wanting to rush ahead as a young guy. Um, And I look at that time and I realized that that was the time for me before I had kids, before I had as many commitments. And often we think that the time, how culture has positioned our 20s is that that's the time where you just get to do all these cool experiences. And there's an element where there's nothing wrong with experiences. But I would have prepared then more read more, prayed more, got better rhythms in my life, gone out and, and just caught up with some really key leaders in my city and say, hey, can I just sit, have 30 minutes with you? What are you doing that, that has got you to this place? Um, so I would have less worry that God wasn't going to use me, more faith that he was, and prepare with great things in store and, and faith in what he's going to do. Um, you never get that chance. I mean, I've heard planters, a set of planters, that the time before you plant is a fantastic time because you never get that time back. It's a little bit like when you have a kid for the first time as parents, um, you need to rest then (laughs) to get ready because sleeplessness will soon come. And yeah, I I would prepare um, really well at that time and and stress less about that God wasn't going to use me. Well, that's so good, man. I've really enjoyed our time together, enjoyed our conversation. I'm sure our listeners have too. Again, uh, we referenced a bunch of books today, and we'll put put all those in the show notes and, and provide links to them. Um, Disappearing Church and Reappearing Church and Facing Leviathan uh, for Mark and then many others as well. So uh, I would really encourage you to check those out, and you can, of course, pick those up wherever books are sold. And, man, Mark, thanks once again for being on the podcast. We really enjoyed having you and please come back anytime. That's been a pleasure. 